following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. In the final debate of the 1984 presidential race, the moderator posed a tough question to 73-year-old Ronald Reagan, who was up for re-election. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff stated you were tired after your most recent encounter with your opponent, Mr. Mondale here. I recall President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind you would be able to function in such circumstances? Reagan replied, not at all, sir. I will not make age an issue in this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> the, the crowd erupted in laughter. The moderator laughed. Even Walter Mondale laughed. In fact, Mondale later said uh, it was at this moment that he knew the race was over. And sure enough, uh, a few weeks later, Reagan re-entered the Oval Office for his second term. In our passage this morning, we too are listening to a debate, a showdown between opposing figures a trap is laid, but then, to the surprise of everyone, the trap is reversed. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. Uh, Mark's gospel is, as we've seen over the course of the last many months, divided into two halves. Chapters 1 to 8 focus on who Jesus is, chapters 9 to 16 on what he's come to do. And here in chapter 11, we've begun stepping slowly, scene by scene by scene, through the final week of Jesus's life. Things are ratcheting up, coming to a head between Jesus and the religious establishment, the, the religious leaders. He is no longer ignorable. Either they're going to bow before him or they're going to try to destroy him. But none of this is catching Jesus by surprise. He literally rode into Jerusalem for this showdown. You can crown me or you can kill me, but the one thing you can't do is remain indifferent. Here's what I think is the main thing this passage is, is pressing on our hearts. Two sentences. Beware of stubborn unbelief disguised as honest questions. It's not safe to approach Jesus on your own terms. 
Beware of stubborn unbelief disguised as honest questions. It's not safe to approach Jesus on your own terms. We'll think about this as we step through this scene in uh, three points. The, the trap, the turn, and the truth. The trap, the turn, and finally the truth. First of all, the trap. Verse 27 they, that is Jesus and the disciples, arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. So remember, just let's get our bearings, figure out where we are in the story, where we are in the week. After the triumphal entry on Sunday evening, Jesus had briefly entered the temple. And remember, Mark tells us he had looked around, and it was a word for a, a searching, commanding gaze. And then the next morning, Monday, he'd returned to the temple courts and was aghast at what he saw. The, remember the, the circus of corruption. And he, he was so irate that he started flipping tables, cleansing, and even condemning the temple itself. It was a day that nobody who witnessed it would ever forget, especially the priests who had been profiting from all that commerce. I mean, if you recall, the priests were colluding with the, with the money changers and the animal sellers to charge exorbitant prices and, of course, take a cut themselves. Until yesterday, when this backwoods rabbi showed up and crashed the party. Well, it's now Tuesday, and Jesus is back, which is actually pretty bold of him, given what we read in verse 18, that his opponents are now intent on finding a way to kill him. So Jesus is entering the temple at his own risk. But of course, this isn't naivete. This this is the plan. This has always been the plan. Jesus is looking for a fight. Not a physical one, but a spiritual clash that will bring the issue to the, to the, fore, to the fore, that will put his identity and his claims front and center. And sure enough, he gets what he came for. As the saying goes, the dogs hit hardest, bark the loudest. I mean, it's no wonder that of all the people that are, that are waiting for Jesus, when he enters the temple grounds again, it's those profiteering priests. Mark tells us it's a full crew, chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders. Three different groups that made up the Jewish ruling council, the high court, what was called the Sanhedrin. Now, we've seen each of these three groups in the Gospel of Mark. But this is the first time they've all appeared as one. Except when Jesus predicted this very scene, because in Mark chapter 8, he mentions them all together when he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed in three days, after three days rise again. Here we are, on the, on the last Tuesday of his life and his prediction, his plan 
is unfolding just as he intended. And here the religious leaders are to set the trap. Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you authority to do this? The things they're referring to, of course, are what? The events of yesterday. Who gave you the right to mess up our temple? Show us your credentials. Let's see, Jesus, if you have any authorization to do this. Notice they're not doubting whether there is a right source of authority. They grant that. They assume that. They just are wondering what Jesus has to do with it. They're wondering why Jesus is here. I mean, they, they're convinced, they have heaven's approval. So what's this upstart rabbi with a Galilean accent doing here, acting like God endorses him? Before we proceed any further, we need to just make sure we understand what authority is according to the Bible. And much could be said, but simply put, authority is being authorized to do something. So power is the capacity to do something. Authority is the moral right or license to do something. You've been authorized to use power in a certain way. This means the presence of authority in the Bible and in our world is not, not automatic evidence of corruption. Authority preceded the fall of man into sin. And I'm not just referring to God's authority, but, but also human authority. The author of life has authorized humans to wield authority for one another's good and for his glory. All three words I just said are related. Author, authorized, authority. To write a book, for example, is to own the work on every page, to dictate what it says, to have the right to be credited with your creation. And if that's true for human writers, how much more true for the one who is writing the story of the universe? Now, of course, ever since the fall, ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve weren't content to just be characters on the page. They wanted to sit in the author's chair. Ever since, history has been plagued by horrific examples of bad authority. I mean, the last thing we should do in any discussion of authority is downplay or minimize its abuses. And yet, we must always recognize the difference. This is just a helpful thing in a lot of realms in life to recognize the difference between misuse and proper use. Just because a thing is misused or abused doesn't mean it cannot be properly used. In fact, when we see authority wielded badly, it should actually make us ache all the more for God, all the more for the kind of right, good, life-giving authority that he designed, and ache all the more, frankly, for the day when he's going to redeem and restore this fallen world to his original design. 
Listen as I read the last words of King David. Okay, so the very end of King David's life, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Listen as I read what he says. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. That is the biblical picture of authority. It is life-giving. It's like sunshine to those under its care. In his forthcoming book, Authority, How Godly Rule Protects the Vulnerable, Strengthens Communities, and Promotes Human Flourishing, Jonathan Lehman writes, quote, a right view of authority must always keep both eyes open. Both eyes open. One eye must always be fixed on bad authority as exercised in the fall. That's Satan's version. In one eye, the other eye must be fixed on good authority. This is God's version. Authority as intended in creation and as exercised in redemption. With both eyes open, only with both eyes open, do we see that authority is a good and dangerous gift. And the particular type of bad authority, because all, there's all kinds of bad authority in human history and in the world today. The particular type that we're confronted with in Mark 11 is religious in nature. In the temple circus, we, we saw that there is no wickedness like religious wickedness. And friends, there is no type of evil authority worse than religious evil authority. Rather than serving the people and caring for their, their souls, these leaders of Israel, these shepherds of Israel, are just scrambling to retain control. They want to be in charge. They want to be seen as in charge. They want to be in charge of the temple system, in charge of the temple commerce, in charge of who the people look to and listen to, in charge of who the people revere. And therefore, they cannot stomach the threat of the, of the man standing right in front of them. This is a general warning to all of us who have been entrusted with authority of some kind. This room is filled with people who have been entrusted with some kind of authority in some kind of sphere. Bosses over employees, law enforcement officers over citizens, teachers over students, parents over children, and so on. But the specific warning zipping its way from this biblical story to our world this morning is a warning given to those with spiritual authority. I mean, we're looking at the Sanhedrin after all, and therefore we should be looking at spiritual leaders, at pastors and elders. Lord willing, this evening, you as a congregation will vote to install your fourth pastor. And so the, the timing of this text is fitting. I didn't plan it this way, but God did. It's fitting as a reminder to Josh, Sebastian, myself, and hopefully Andy, that our authority as shepherds is a good but dangerous gift, a dangerous but precious gift to be handled with care 
for the glory of the chief shepherd. Pray for us, brothers and sisters. Pray for your pastors that we would remember, always remember, that we are not entitled to this role. Pray that we would be decisive and lead boldly and yet never lead in such a way, never shepherd in such a way that is harsh or domineering to those under our care. Pray that we would believe deep in our hearts and that we would embody Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the flock of the church of God, which he bought. He bought with his own blood. Oh, pray that we would never believe the satanic lie that this church somehow belongs to us. This scene in Mark 11 in the temple courts is, is not the first time, of course, that this topic of authority has popped up in Mark's gospel. It's been a theme. It's, act, it's been a tension that's been running through the narrative, winding its way all the way to this moment in chapter 11. It's been a tension point since the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 22, the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law. Chapter 1, verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked one another, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Turning the page, chapter 2, verse 10, but I want you to know, Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And then in chapter 3 and chapter 6, we're told explicitly that Jesus has authority. Jesus alone has authority to cast out demons. And then in the previous chapter, chapter 10, Jesus contrasted, if you recall, he contrasted his own authority, which is life-giving with that of the rulers who lord it over the Gentiles. But all that building tension is finally coming to a head. In fact, almost half the times that the word authority shows up in Mark's gospel are in this little passage. The leaders, notice, who come to Jesus don't have a word to say. Not a word about his miracles. Not a word about his teaching. Not even a word about his claims. It's just, who told you you could act like this? We never did. We never delegated any authority to you. So where did you get it? Do you see the trap he's in? If he points to his own authority, if that's his answer, my authority is intrinsic to myself, whether they're just going to dismiss him, deride him, mock him. But if he says I'm sent from God, well, then they'll indict him for blasphemy. They don't really care what he says. They're not so much interested in which wrong answer he gives so long as he's tricked into exposing himself. The trap. Number two, the turn. The turn. Verse 29, Jesus replied, 
I will ask you one question. They'd actually asked him two. He just poses to them one. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. This is a total curveball, right? Because instead of answering their question, though notice, he's willing to. He promises, I will answer your question. Just first answer this one. He says, let's talk John the Baptist. What? Like, we haven't heard about John the Baptist since chapter 6 when his head was on a platter. All right? He's been out of the story for a long time. What is Jesus doing here out of left field bringing in John the Baptist? Well, here's what he's up to. It's subtle and it's brilliant. Here's what he's up to. He's saying essentially, okay, you, you want to know the origin of my authority for my ministry? What was the origin for John's? What was John's authority for his ministry? See what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if you can't answer that question, then you won't be prepared to receive my answer to your question. Because whatever you think of John has everything to do with what you're going to think of me. See, John's whole purpose was to be a forerunner, pointing to, paving the way for the Messiah. So by bringing up John, and look, not just John in general, but specifically John's baptism, Jesus is bringing up his own baptism. He's calling back, not so subtly, to a scene from chapter 1 that perhaps these religious leaders had heard about and didn't want to remember. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And what happened? Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased." And Jesus is looking at these religious leaders and saying, what do you think of that? Do you agree with heaven's opinion? But let's go even deeper. Think about this. Think about what else is layered in Jesus' question to them. John, if you think about his ministry, John carried out his ministry completely apart from the temple system. John acted like the temple was irrelevant. John didn't need the temple to authenticate what he was doing. He was out in the wilderness, far from Jerusalem, and yet he had a divine, direct mission to perform the, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And his ministry was totally free of charge. It didn't involve money changers. It didn't involve animal sellers. It completely bypassed the sacrificial system. It completely bypassed the temple complex. The only thing required to receive John's ministry was not an, an, a lamb or a goat. It was just a humble heart. 
Now, think about this. It's now the morning after Jesus upended that temple circus. He's now, again, standing in the temple courts. It's not a coincidence, then, that he references John's ministry as a way of questioning the whole system. If his ministry, John's ministry, you see the logic here? If John's ministry was from heaven and no animal sacrifices were needed, well, maybe the temple itself is becoming obsolete. Maybe the fulfillment is here. Notice that Jesus is not cowering. He's taking charge. By turning the question on these religious leaders, he's subtly showing them who's really on trial. Verse 31. They discussed the question among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, John's baptism was from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. This was a big group. Remember I said this wasn't just one of the three groups. This was all 71 of the Sanhedrin, plus the, perhaps the ruling high priest. You can imagine this unwieldy huddle that starts to form as they try to confer about what to say in response. If they admit that, Jesus, that John was sent from God, well, then Jesus is just going to say, well, why did you oppose him? Why didn't you obey him? Why didn't you heed his call to repent? But if they give the other answer, oh, John? Oh, that that guy was going rogue. He was not on a divine mission. He got from Herod, I'm sad to say, what he deserved. Well, then Jesus wouldn't even have to respond. The crowd listening in would freak out and maybe start a riot because they all revered John as a true prophet, as a righteous martyr. See, as they're in their big huddle drafting their response, they realize, oh man, we don't have Jesus trapped. He has us trapped. Which means that this is actually their golden opportunity. Jesus has them. This is their chance to repent, to humble themselves, to say, you, you got us, Jesus. That was brilliant. Our motives were off. You got us. We lacked eyes to see, ears to hear, but now we see that both John and you really are sent from God. So how will they respond? The ink on their statement, their drafted statement is still wet. What does it say? Verse 33. So they answered Jesus. we don't know. Not, we don't want to answer, which would have been pathetic, but still true. But we don't know, which was a lie. Now, Now, of course, saying, 
I don't know to Jesus can sometimes be a good answer. Sometimes saying, I don't know about theological matters that God has not revealed, that, that's a good answer. That's the best theological answer. We, we all need the answer, I don't know, in our toolkit. And some of us need to pull it out more often. There are, finite, there are things that finite minds just can't grasp, things that God's word simply doesn't reveal. But here, we're not staring at virtuous humility. Rather than risking the anger of the crowd or admitting they were wrong about John, that they should have listened to John, they just deflect. They just deflect to protect themselves. We don't know Jesus, which of course really means we don't want to know. We refuse to know. No matter what you say to us, no matter what you do, we refuse to believe you. And the reason for their stubbornness, the reason they don't care about the truth, is actually told to us. It's given right there at the end of verse 32 in four words. They feared the people. Not they feared the Lord, but they feared the people. This is the heart of so many sins, isn't it? Few things in, in the history of the world have caused as much damage and devastation as the fear of man. And I'm not just talking about on a global scale. Don't just think about world wars. Think about your own life, your own heart, the wreckage that's in your wake because of your sin, which so often boils down to the fear of man. This is why our call to worship at the beginning of the service was Psalm 29:25, which is a great verse to memorize. I'm sorry, Proverbs. Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept, snake, kept safe. Do you hear the two options there in Proverbs 29, 25? There's only two options. Fear man, and you'll struggle to trust the Lord or trust the Lord, embrace his promises, rest in his character, trust the Lord, and you'll struggle to fear man. One of the best Christian books I've ever read is by Ed Welch, memorably titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. That's what had happened to these religious leaders. The onlookers had inflated and the Messiah standing in front of them had shrunk. The people were big, and so God was small. Brothers and sisters, this is Scripture's consistent witness. On page after page, we fear God so little because we fear man so much. And the reverse is also true. We fear man so much because we fear God so little. This is why we can't find peace. This is why we're crippled by worry. 
This is why we're debilitated by comparison. We look inward to ourselves. We're quick to look inward to ourselves. We're quick to look outward at others, but we are slow, often only as a last resort, to look upward to the Lord. But the Bible says that doing that, that fearing the Lord, as we thought about in Proverbs last week, fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the key to understanding, the antidote to fear. Now, to to be clear, fearing God doesn't mean he's mean. We, We don't fear him because he's mean, but because he's holy. He's not a dictator. He's not just kind of a traffic cop in the sky. No, he is the Lord of love. He's beautiful. As one old Puritan put it, godly fear doesn't arise from perceiving God as hazardous, but glorious. The one who made us and redeems us is worthy of our esteem, our reverence, our all. These religious leaders feared the people for a specific reason. They feared the people because they feared losing power, losing control. What about you? If a friendly stranger, I add that adjective lest it be creepy, Uh, if, If a friendly stranger were to observe your life for one week, what, who would they conclude is in control? They're not looking at your doctrinal statement. They're just observing your behavior for a week in public and in private. Who would they conclude is running things? Would it be clear to them that actually despite your confession that you have to be in control situations circumstances relationships now for many christians we we are happy for jesus to have control we're happy for for jesus to be the lord of our lives so long as it's on our terms according to our timing, our preferences. He can can govern all the provinces of our life if we can just keep one to ourselves. But that's not true faith, is it? In fact, that's actually the opposite of faith. That is what it means to walk by sight, not by faith. This encounter in Mark 11 raises some pointed questions for us to ponder. Is there an area of your life where you're just keeping up appearances, managing the optics, lest people see the real you? Are there any sins that you're, 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 you're nursing, you're coddling, maybe you're managing, you're holding on to, but you're unwilling to confess, to bring into the light because of what people may think? Is there anything you shouldn't be doing but are because you want people to like you? Conversely, is there anything you should be doing but aren't because you're afraid? I'd encourage you to reach out to someone in the church this week and and meet up to talk through questions 
like these. That's not a throwaway pastor comment, okay? I'm not going to coordinate it for you. I'm not going to send out scores of emails this week setting up coffee dates. I'm saying take some spiritual ownership in your life. Take some spiritual and relational initiative. Reach out to another member. Meet up with them and talk through questions like these. And it does, you don't have to enter the conversation with this kind of morbid dread. If you both approach the conversation with gospel maturity, knowing that you are sinners saved by grace, only good can come from it. Whatever you do, don't look on someone else as these religious hypocrites did. Don't assume you're any better. Look at yourself with the help of honest friends. Look at yourself and then own what you see. Well, how does Jesus respond to their feigned ignorance, this response of, we don't know? Number three, the truth. Look there at the end of verse 33. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Jesus refuses to engage further, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he knows their hearts. He could have just put them on blast, couldn't he? I mean, as, as we would say today, he could have just dunked on them, right? You don't know? <laughs> yes, you do, you frauds. But that wouldn't be productive. Their, their hearts had already become like concrete. I mean, this is the way to annoy the Son of God. You want to annoy Jesus Christ? Here's your proof text. To make him essentially say, I love you, but I don't engage with people like you. It's the same principle from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 6. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may just trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Friends, this is sobering. You need to make eye contact with Jesus right here. You don't want to be in the position of these religious leaders. You don't want Jesus saying this to you. Look, you may not like the authority of church or Jesus telling you what to do, but you are not living a life. You are not completely devoid of authority. You are answering to something. You are bound to someone. You are operating on the basis of some kind of rule. You're not an island. You're not as independent as you think. And whatever it is you're living for, Whatever it is you're serving, whatever it is is getting your best attention, your best energy, your deepest hopes, if it's not Jesus, it's going to let you down. And if it's not Jesus, it already has you in chains. You may fancy yourself free. You may fancy yourself free, friend, but you march to the beat of your idol's drum. Either realize today where true authority comes from, this is your chance. The, the religious leaders missed their opportunity. They blew their chance, but this is yours. Recognize where true authority comes from or remain a slave to lesser imitations. Friend, the question of Christ's authority is just as relevant this morning as it was that morning 2,000 years ago in the temple courts. Perhaps you bristle at the idea, who is he to tell me what to do? I mean, I, I like Jesus. I'm fine with Jesus. I respect Jesus. But who is he to try to govern every province of my life? 
Well, the answer for starters is he's the creator of the whole universe. What's playing out here in Mark 11 is actually a demonstration of a parable we've already seen. It's probably the parable you've forgotten because it's like one sentence. (laughs) But there's a little parable in chapter 4 that we looked at. You remember that? Chapter 4, verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear, Jesus said, with the measure. Remember that? With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. A measure was a tool used in the marketplace to weigh out grain and other kinds of food. And the idea here in chapter 4 in that parable is that the amount of significance, in other words, the weight that you attribute to Jesus' kingdom message is going to have everything to do with the way you listen The more you lean in seriously and engage actively and listen eagerly, Jesus says, the more truth you're going to see. When I preached that passage, I won't re-preach it. Uh, You can go back and listen to that sermon. But I'll just say I did take you to two verses in Psalm 119 where we saw, if you remember, in one verse, understanding leads to obedience, which is like, Duh, right? We all know that. That's intuitive. Of course, understanding leads to obedience. The more you grasp something, the more likely you'll obey. But I also showed you another verse in Psalm 119, Psalm 119, 100, which teaches the reverse is also true. Obedience leads to understanding. It's a counterintuitive thought, isn't it? But the Bible insists on it. If you obey, you'll set yourself up to understand, but if you harden your heart, you will remain in the dark. Look again at the last three words of verse 17. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. They came to him. By itself? This is a hopeful statement. After all, hasn't Jesus sounded the invitation? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And here they are coming to him. What this shows us is there's a wrong way to approach Jesus. These highly religious men had no interest in truly knowing who he was or bringing their lives under his rule. And friend, just because you're sitting in a church service. I mean, that means that there's a sense in which you have approached Jesus today. You could be anywhere else, but you're in church. But with what kind of heart? With a sort of yawning boredom? With a kind of stubborn skepticism? Or with desperate, humble faith? It wasn't enough 20 centuries ago to just physically come to Jesus. And it's not enough today to just physically come to church. You have to come to Christ in faith. You have to repent of your sins and believe that he died in the place of those who acknowledge, yes, I failed to live for you and your glory. I've been controlled by other things. I have not lived a life free of authorities. 
I've been my own greatest authority. I've submitted to every authority under the sun except for you. Forgive me of my sin. Free me from these chains, from these idols. I want you to be my Lord and King. If you've never done that, then we would love nothing more than to talk with you about that after the service. This room is filled with people who would love to share how that simple message has changed their lives. I'll be standing at the door. I would be happy to talk with you as well about how you can be forgiven and freed and enter into a relationship with the Lord who loves you. But this is a warning to disciples of Jesus as well. Okay? So this passage, I'm I'm obviously speaking a lot this morning to the non-Christian, but look at the passage. There's no Christians in it. It's just Jesus and his enemies. But there's still a warning to disciples of Jesus here. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to your Christian life, what kind of return on investment are you wanting? If your heart is soft, you'll receive more from the Lord, but if it's hard, you'll get less. That's the, that's the meaning of Psalm 119.100. Obedience leads to understanding. That's the meaning of the measure parable in chapter 4. That's the meaning of what's being played out here in chapter 11. Oh, give your attention and allegiance to Jesus and you'll get out way more than you put in. But if you, Christian, just kind of float through life, half listening, half obeying, I know this, I've been there, I've done that, do not expect to grow. Remember the illustration I've I've given before about you being, say, held captive in a dungeon and your captors come to you and say, we will release you on one condition, that you solve a riddle. If you solve this riddle, you'll be freed forever. But there's actually one more condition. (laughs) You're only going to hear the riddle once. It will never be repeated. Now, how would you listen as that riddle was being told to you? Is that how you listen to the Word of God? Do you lean in with hungry, desperate faith, hanging on every word, not of me, but of Him? We can also learn something, believers, from this about how to respond to people in our lives who oppose the gospel. Sometimes, and this is not normally the thing that is taught when it comes to evangelism. It's not necessarily the the leading emphasis of Scripture, but we can't evade it here. Sometimes, rather than dragging things out to the point of frustration, it's wise to just ask a simple exposing question like Jesus does here. It's probably not going to be very effective if you ask someone on on Broad Street about John's baptism. But you could ask an exposing question. You could say something like, hey, friend, I'm, I'm happy to, to keep dialoguing with you, uh, but just out of curiosity, will you just answer this one question for me? Let's say I were to answer all of your questions to your satisfaction. Let's say I were to give a good answer to all of your objections. Would you then submit your entire life to Jesus Christ? 
their response to that is going to be telling. Because if not, if they have no interest, whatever you tell them, in embracing the lordship of Christ, then it's a waste of both of your time. It's a fruitless conversation. There is such a thing as moving on, prayerfully, sadly, but moving on to those who might have better ears to hear. Well, in conclusion, this story presents us with two pictures of authority, two contrasting pictures of authority. One is about saving face, protecting personal power. The other is about coming not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. By what authority is Jesus doing these things? That's the question on the table. Well, it's by both the authority of his divine nature as the son of the father and by his authority as God's royal human king, one person, two natures, God's perfect man and man's perfect God. But the question facing us this morning is not what does the father think of Jesus? It's what do you think of Jesus? And this is not only a question if you're not yet a Christian. What do you think of Jesus this morning? Are you willing to recognize his authority and relinquish control of your life to him? This is a daily decision. And to help you answer that question, whether for the first time, if you're not a Christian, or for the 10,000th time, if you are, you have to remember something. You will not rightly answer, rightly respond to that question if you don't remember that 2,000 years ago, on a little hill outside of Jerusalem, on the cross, Jesus relinquished control. Jesus was willingly forsaken by God so that we could be welcomed in. But in order to be welcomed in to his family, into abundant life now, eternal life forever, we can't walk with a swagger. We can't puff out our chest. We can't hold on to control. We've got to stoop. We've got to duck our head and step through God's low door of humility in order to enter the expanse, the expansive freedom of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have lived our lives serving false masters, wrong authorities. We have sought to control our lives, control our reputations, control even you. And in so doing, we have failed to give the honor and glory that is due to your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come on a rescue mission to liberate us from our chains and to bring us into the freedom of gospel grace. We pray that we would experience and live in that this week. In your name we pray. Amen.